0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guests today are Shelby and Eli Steele. Shelby Steele is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the author of many books, including The Content of Our Character, which won him the National Book Critics Circle Award. Eli Steele, who's his son, is a documentary filmmaker whose films include How Jack Became Black, What's Bugging Seth, and What Killed Michael Brown, which is the subject of today's conversation. The topic, of course, is the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014 and all the related issues. One note here, Eli Steele is deaf, but is able to lip-read over Zoom. So understanding his speech might take a bit more focus than normal, but it's very worth it. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, Shelby and Eli Steele. Shelby and Eli Steele, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. So I just finished about 30 minutes ago watching your documentary, What Killed Michael Brown. And I want that to be the focal point of this conversation. The documentary is is excellent and interesting and timely. And I think everyone listening to this podcast should go watch it on Vimeo. It's $20. And I make a very brief appearance. Uh, but it's it's worth watching. And this podcast won't be a substitute for watching it. And so, so I want to talk about the, the themes of the documentary. And I also want to talk about the the, the censorship of the documentary from Amazon and the wider problem of virtual tech monopolies deciding, based on political bias, what counts as valid material. But before we get to that, let's just talk about what moved you to make this documentary about Ferguson and the shooting of Michael Brown.
1: Uh, I think we felt that it, it, Ferguson and Michael, the, the death and all of the hoopla surrounding it, the major themes of race relations in America were politically, culturally, and so forth were in play in this this one isolated incident. I mean, this is a shooting of a teenage black male by a white cop, but again, just one death. President of the United States became involved, the attorney general became involved, the FBI became involved, Meanwhile, on the south side of Chicago, thousands of black boys and girls were killed, were shot, hundreds killed, and very little attention at all. Well, the only real difference is that the, in, in Ferguson, if the trigger finger was white, uh, the victim was, was black. Uh, in Chicago, it was black on black, no interest. Well, that seemed to me to be, to encapsulate there's something very unique about race relations in America and and, uh, and so we we took the film as an opportunity to to explore that try to identify what forces were at work there how this happened and more broadly uh, where is uh, the matter of race in american life today
2: yeah the one did if you about the whole thing was there we started this documentary probably in 2017, and we were looking for some kind of event or some issue to tackle. And what was interesting about Ferguson was that it had become almost a sacred symbol in America, sort of like Thelma, like people quote <laughs> Ferguson, like Thelma, you know, it's like a market point in American history. But the problem with that is there's two very different narratives. With Thelma, nobody disagrees with that. Everybody... Unless you really are not, everybody embraces that. But with Ferguson, it's such a divide. And so that's where we want that's, that third part of the attraction was why is this such a divide? Why is this narrative going into almost every institution? And why are we not allowed to question it?
0: Hmm. Yeah. So to your point, Shelby, about the lack of attention that's paid to victims of. Uh, to black victims of homicide by black murderers, usually the retort to that point is that activists care more about police-involved homicides because they have state authority on their side. That's generally the first clapback. But there's something disingenuous about that argument, I feel, because if you look at how many unarmed white people get killed by the cops every year, often in precisely the same circumstances as unarmed black victims, those white names just get memory hold. They're lost to history. Nobody cares. So I was aware of one case that happened in 2015 of a white man in his late 30s named Daniel Elrod. And it stuck out to me because the details of the case were eerily similar to the Michael Brown case. Daniel Elrod had just robbed a store and there was dispute about whether he put his hands up when the police accosted him and he was shot and killed in that case. And nobody knows the name Daniel Elrod. So I think at the end of the day, it really is the case that it's not about people caring more about violence perpetrated by the state. It's about the colors of the of the victim and the perpetrator. And the, I guess the other way to see this is to to ask why the Trayvon Martin case got attention when it wasn't a white cop in that instance; it was a white civilian. So it's really all about the color of the victim and the perpetrator in these cases.
2: They made, but they made Trayvon Martin you know, so, they, so they kind of made me sort of cop figure, like he was a busy line. Zimmerman. Oh, Zimmerman.
0: Zimmerman, you mean. Yeah. So let's dive into a little bit of background about Ferguson as a place. Can you give people a primer on the history of Ferguson and some of the misconceptions about how Ferguson was portrayed in the media in the aftermath of Michael Brown's death and what the place is actually like when you visit?
1: Uh, let's see. The, I mean, I think the, the 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 word that comes to mind in terms of describing Ferguson is is nondescript. It's a hard little place. It's so utterly ordinary. So um, ordinariness just seems to be it's it's very essence. It's a suburb of St. Louis. I'd say probably working class suburb with some sections that are. That are much better off. Actually, some parts of Ferguson are very beautiful and, and uh, seem to be well-to-do and so forth. But it's a, a typical sort of suburb. The town I grew up in off the south side of Chicago somewhat somewhat similar, easy to overlook, kind of nondescript. Uh, it was created by the railroads years and years ago that uh, made it a stop. And so the town sort of built up around that, that uh, stop. In recent years, uh, it has been, a, a like most of ma- major cities in America, kind of victim of white flight. As whites move out of the city and move to the suburbs, And Ferguson was one of the first ones that they moved to. Time passed, and it was rigid segregation and so forth. As time passed, we come up to contemporary times, and the government has introduced... Section 8 housing, to apartment buildings for people who are on welfare, and so they brought in two Section 8 housing. This one neighborhood, where Michael Brown was shot and killed, they uh, that neighborhood became a kind of ghetto uh, within a little working class city, little little town, twenty-two thousand people, and that's where the focus of the the police often were in that neighborhood, and as time moved, as time has moved on, and white flight is, has continued, the area now is it's not a hundred percent black, but it's close. Most of the surrounding uh, suburbs are all black, really, at this point, uh, and have been for a while. Peaceful, uh, little part of the world uh, again, working class, but mainly again the the. The stresses of urban renewal and and, um, how, and handling the growing black underclass sort of pushed Ferguson into this, this situation where it had Section 8 housing for the first time and, and um, lowered property values and the town began to, to
0: decline. And in the documentary, it looked like there was some frustration from white residents of Ferguson who felt that in the coverage of the Michael Brown shooting, they were being portrayed as racists when, in fact, they felt like being the white people that stayed in Ferguson, that they hadn't participated in the white flight that many other white people had. And there was a kind of... A sense of extra insult at seeing themselves as people who stayed and then now having the, the finger pointed at them as racists.
1: Yeah. That's right. The, we interviewed the Ashby's, a uh, couple that, that moved there 20 more years ago, uh, lived there happily. Uh, all this time, and, and there are many other white families. We interviewed uh, another gentleman who's an engineer and who's lived there pretty much all of his life. And they, these people now are live under the accusation, of course, just because they're, they live within the, the city limits of Ferguson, that, they somehow, that this is somehow an enclave of, of white racism and, and so forth. When, in fact, the opposite is true. These are people who were looking for integrated neighborhoods to live in uh, and were happy and proud uh, to be to find Ferguson. And they've devoted their lives to it. Many of them are still there, even though they've, they've paid a price in, in uh, how the values of their homes have gone down and so forth. But they've stayed true to, to their, their feelings about what's really possible for this little town the damage, was, um, the damage was, was, was significant because you have people that
2: are, um you have, you know, uh, black coming from North City St. Louis, is in the North part thing Louis is black, the South part is white. They were coming into purchasing as like the first step, like buying a home, you know, becoming uh, citizen and so forth. And you had a wife who, many of them who stayed, and they were here so make this into the community, and they did, they were working together. And this happened. And then you have the outsiders who have no idea what the history is like. And they impose the, the narrative onto the people. They have very oversimplification of it. So you are white, you're racist, you're black, you're Christian. And you know, I mean really they divide the town and these people, despite that, are still trying to um, hold on to what they have before, like for example, the ashes that he mentioned earlier. They volunteer, they, you know, they try to integrate, they try to keep that integration going on. Uh, but it's a huge challenge because when you have outside forces come in, whispering into people's ear,
0: they a question what you may be doing. It creates the undercurrent in that community. Yeah, there are a lot of directions to go in here, but uh, let's, let's, I guess, first go into what what happened, remind people what happened with with Michael Brown and uh, the officer, Darren Wilson, because I think a lot of people, when they recall the Ferguson event, all they remember is white cop killed a young black man who held his hands up and said, don't shoot. So you know the, the pro you call this a poetic truth shelby can you explain what you mean by that and and then can we remind people what was actually found in the department of justice investigation
1: a poetic truth is the, is the version of an event that you concoct in order to pursue power and you use poetic license to bend reality, to shape it. So Michael Brown was not just a kid who on a hot afternoon lost his temper, attacked a policeman and ended up being shot. Michael Brown is a black man, representative of blacks all over the country, all throughout American history, who have been uh, lynched and shot and murdered by racist, Overseers, policemen, and and so forth. So poetically, Michael Brown's death is a sort of image of this history and in that sense sort of validates or proves that this history is still with us today. We're still a society that is capable of murdering a, a black teenager. For no other reason than the fact than the fact that he's that he's black so uh, that is that's what uh, so we mean by by poetic truth. and so there's a in these kind of events, almost instantly there's a competition between the poetic truth that we start to invent right away and reality what really in fact happened. So you see the character Shaheed in the film that was close to the family. He's the one who invented hands up, don't shoot. Again, an image of, of victimization, the hands of racism. Uh, he, he was one of the, the sort of architects of this poetic truth that why do this? Why go to, to all the, the, the trouble to, do, to in reinvent in this way? Because the, in America today, blacks at any rate perceive their victimization to be their power, gives them a moral authority in American life to push, to demand things, to argue for their own entitlement, to, to be recognized. So our victimization is in that odd sense precious to us. It stops, if it weren't for that, we would be invisible completely so what what this what they're doing in the, in the again the poetic truth saves our self-esteem here we are again and poor boys was shot uh by a white uh, policeman and and uh it's, it's like 1932 in Mississippi and uh, the beat goes on America owes us and we have the the dynamic that just sort of then spins out eric holder the Attorney General Barack Obama, the president, come into Ferguson. President of the United States sends his his envoy, uh, Eric Holder, Attorney General, to in, to investigate because they want the poetic truth to be the the, the truth that prevails, because that's where the power is. If blacks have been victimized, then that's power. They can. Bring it back, use it in a political context. Whereas in Chicago, 300 miles up the road, uh, again, thousands of blacks shot every year, teenagers, by other black teenagers. president's not interested. He never visits uh, the attorney general. You can't get his attention because there's no power there. The minute there's power there, then the poetry begins.
0: So am I remembering correctly that Eric Holder did not meet with the white mayor of Ferguson, but met with the black mayors of all the surrounding towns. That's right. I mean, (laughs) talk about a a naked
1: (laughs) power move, that was it.
0: Yeah, so to remind people here, Eric Holder came into Ferguson saying, he's coming as the attorney general, but he's quote, also coming as a black man. And combined with not meeting with the white mayor of Ferguson, all of that amounted to a signal that he was significantly biased towards finding the cop to be guilty of something. And even still, when he ended up releasing two different Justice Department reports, the one that pertained specifically to the Michael Brown case exonerated Darren Wilson, because you know on the basis of evidence, even coming into it biased against him, was unable to corroborate any witness testimony to the effect that Michael Brown had his hands up or was killed execution style, and the the witness testimony overwhelmingly corroborated the the cops account wherein Michael Brown punched him. Tried to reach his gun, overpowered him, initially began to run away, but then turned around and charged the cop through two series of bullets, almost unfazed, and then finally went down. So it, it corroborated the basic picture of a cop trying to make an arrest and fearing for his life and only shooting because he rationally feared for his life. Uh, and many people don't remember the Ferguson incident that way. They remember what it felt like initially to, to read Hands Up, Don't Shoot. And it seems like a lot of these cases end up going that way. There's an initial picture surrounded by uncertainty, and it could go either way. But all the incentives in the media, especially you know outside of Fox News, All the incentives in the media are to take the racism angle, to look at all the evidence that confirms the racism angle and ignore any evidence that could possibly exonerate the cop. And it's happened over and over again since then. So let's talk a little bit about we'll talk about the second report that Eric Holder came up with which was a report that found the Ferguson police to to be engaging in systemic racism and essentially exploitative for-profit policing of the Black population of Ferguson. Can you explain how he came to that finding in the report?
2: Um, yeah, it was the... It was the um a lot of people in Ferguson had um, very mixed feelings about the report. Um, apparently, I don't want to speak like you know hundred percent surenesses and relying on memory. But apparently, there were like three officers in Ferguson that were in charge of this traffic stop. If you look at the report, I mean, there, there was the guy that mainly gave the ticket. If you look at the, uh, if you look at Eric Holder's report, you notice that they call them police officers. They know they the race. So that's where you have to look at the report and say, okay, they're involved in the right cop. But these cops over here, they don't mention the race because they're not right. At least two to three are not right. So it doesn't quite fit into that narrative, but when you read it, you get assume the cops are right because focusing is a majority. Um, the police department at that time was almost all right. But for some reason, that particular aspect, um, they were not right. So there's a lot of things in that report, they kind of fall short of what you would be required if you do if you were a public policy student or some kind a of law student. They don't meet the standard. What they use training, actually, event to indict the whole police department. But when you kind of step back and look at the pieces and how many pieces there are, there are not that many. I mean it's like any um, any town we have all these little incidences. You can make them into what you want to make them into. So that's why the report itself was kind of, it was a little shoddy. And that's sort of why we made the movie, because we realized that we have to go beyond what Eric Holder did in his report. It's try to it arrive at the truth if we can.
0: Yeah. And it, it, I think I, I recall someone in the, in the film expressing some degree of sympathy for that report on the basis of the habit of finding poor people who are almost all black in a, in a particular neighborhood, who almost certainly couldn't meet the fines and then get into a cycle of owing the city money and questioning whether that's actually the wisest policy to pursue or whether that doesn't just engender hatred and lack of trust and poor relations between you know, poor people and, and the cops. Well, one thing we found... One of the people
1: in the, in the film, uh, this woman named Terry, who was who, uh, wife and mother of two Ferguson policemen, both of whom were involved in all of this. And she makes some obvious points. For so one thing is that uh, most of the tickets go to blacks because that's who lives there. The town next door to Ferguson is 95% black. And so in terms of ticketing as a way to, to create revenue, Uh, And it is a way. It is often used, and it is often misused as a way to create revenue in all these little suburbs of St. Louis. Chicago is very similar. They don't have many revenue streams. Ticketing is one, and so if you are in and about those those areas, you you really have to be. You had to be at that point very careful, or you'd get a ticket, and if you didn't pay it off, then you'd get a summons, and if you didn't do that. it would just mount and mount, and you'd be out of work, and they, they finally would put you in jail. So it's a, dr- a draconian and terrible way to ra- to raise revenue, but it was hard to prove racist. Once again, it affected everybody. Many of the cops who gave out the the, the cop who gave out the most tickets in Ferguson was black. In other the municipalities very very close by. Uh, once again, they use ticketing as a revenue, as a source of revenue. So you don't get a, there's no clear black and white. It may, let's, you can, we could decide it's the corruption and ticketing, whole ticketing situation ought to change. And in fact, it has begun to, but it's once again, the poetic truth is that it's driven by racism. It's It's systemic racism against blacks. Once again, there's no evidence of that at all. The, um, bigger problem, I think the bigger problem was you have all these poor people
2: they you've been since you have the black underclass, you know, a lot of the housing projects failed, so you have the population of people, they don't have, they, they were born into an environment where they have tools of the skills, they were not educated properly, well, what will you do with them? You should move them around move them into 68 houses. You should kind of try and move the problems around. So in Ferguson in 2000, they're the ones that, okay, we'll do our part. Literally a direct quote, we'll do our part. We'll take them in. We have these houses, complexes. There are two of them, Park Ridge and then North Wind. North Wind is where Michael Brown slept last night there in his grandmother's house. So you take the population in. The poor, they're, they're of a lower class than the people that live in the city. And the people who or who originally there people them, can't afford to buy, me. but these people can. And so that's what the Roman theory was saying: was right? you brought these people in, but you didn't adjust your policies to make it fair or make it make the system work fair, so they would uh, either work it off or, or so forth. However, the counter argument, which we did not put in the documentary, you should um, you should correct me if I'm wrong was that they actually did implement policies that, that you should work off your fine, you should do things to get off if you want to. But rarely the anybody show up. So they kind
1: of go both ways. Hmm. I didn't know that. Since um, Michael Brown's death, ticketing has gone down.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh because it's it now government, it invites the stigmatization of race, of being racist. And so the government just doesn't, doesn't want a part of it anymore.
0: And do you know whether the residents of Ferguson feel that that's a net good? Oh, I'm sure they probably do
1: feel that that it's a good. On the other hand, there's been this sort of Ferguson effect where the policemen have pulled back. Generally, the, the police department shrunk by half. So there's, there's just simply fewer policemen around, again, because the, this, the, the fear of the stigmatization of being not only a cop, but a cop in Ferguson, it's it's sort of a, a you take a career risk <laughs> doing that. So crime is up. Accidents are up. Speeding is way up. Everybody speeds now. Comes to Ferguson to speed through. And while police watch it happen, they simply are that afraid or intimidated by this fear of being stigmatized as racists. And so the quality of life has declined uh, because crime goes up and and the policemen are, are holding back.
0: I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to our sponsor for this episode. Hiring is one of those things you don't wanna mess up. To take your business to the next level, you need to hire great people with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly. This way you can do the part you really need faster, meeting and hiring great people. Unlike some hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts, you can pause your account at any time, and you only pay for what you need. With Instant Match, you see a list of great candidates with zero wait. Plus, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. So if you want your quality shortlist fast, you need Indeed. Right now, Conversations with Coleman listeners will get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post when you head to Indeed.com forward slash conversations. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. To redeem your free $75 credit, head to Indeed.com forward slash conversations. Again, that's Indeed.com forward slash conversations. The offer is valid through March 31st and terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I think a lot of people want to live in a world or want to pretend that we're living in a world where there's no trade-off between police presence and crime. Uh, and it, it just it seems so naive to me to to feel that there's no relationship between those two things, that the police can just back off and nothing will change. And the truth is, I think the media pays more attention to police abuses... Then to the aftermath of these scenarios when crime can go up and the rioters and the cameras have left, and it's just the residents of these locations that have to deal with the long-term consequences. So, for example, in Minneapolis, I've been seeing a few articles in the past two months saying that in the aftermath of George Floyd's death in police custody, and the the police backing off as a result that a lot of residents are now asking for a greater police presence. And obviously, those stories don't make it to in general, don't don't make headlines as as much as the initial stories of police abuse do. So people get the false impression that there's this is just a an easy, good versus evil question. All we have to do is get rid of the cops. And there's no hard adult trade to even think about. And that's one of the pernicious long-term consequences of the way these incidents are talked about in the media.
1: Yeah, though so that's a negligible policing is of only of negligible importance, and we can again show our innocence of racism by cutting back on the on the policemen, making hardworking citizens vulnerable to crime. At a, at a much higher level. So this is where you, you see um, ideas associated with liberalism, this progressive view of the world, next to reality, begin to fall to pieces. Wherever you lower the presence of police, then crime goes up. I, I'm, there may be some exceptions to that, but I'm not aware of them, I've never heard of them.
0: Are you aware of the uh, the Harvard economist Roland Fryer? Yes he he's just come out with a paper that studies every justice department investigation of a US police department since the 90s trying to answer the question do these investigations of police departments lead to an to an upswing in crime and the basic picture of his investigation is that When there's a Justice Department that's precipitated by a viral video of somebody getting shot by a cop, in those cases, homicides go up substantially in the aftermath to the tune of thousands of mostly black people killed that would not have been killed if not for the investigation and the subsequent backing off. So there is some empirical reason to believe that this, this is a problem, not in every case, but in cases where the police really feel national attention being pointed to them as racists.
2: Yeah, you're not going to make anything better if you call people racist. I mean, you know, because I think like that's being reported, if I'm correct, after stage the say there's a proactive effort to make a police department better after a viral shooting the department will comply and actually want to get better because they're not being targeted. They're not being, it's just, Hey, we're part of a community. We don't have all the answers. What, device, what, what, what can we do? Should make us better. That's a very different thing than, um, than, um, going at somebody, coming at somebody because
0: you're a waste. I mean, you're not getting rid of that. Yeah. This is one of the, one of the odd things is that most people who are shaming trying to shame others into changing their opinion probably can't think of a moment when they themselves were instantly shamed into some new opinion, but they seem to be operating under the assumption that this will work as a tactic for others. So I want to talk a little bit about the riots. It it occurred to me when I came down to Ferguson, when you brought me down for the documentary, that most people... Following these incidents from their homes, don't see the long run devastation that riots cause. The, the businesses that leave and never come back, the abandoned buildings, the, the disinvestment and the poverty and unemployment that riots can cause several years after the riots are over. I think I came, I must have come last year or the year before. And yeah, last year. And you pointed out to me, I, I think it was black owned barbershop that to this day hasn't returned as a result of the riots in 2014. And that that's another blind spot that the media has because it's, if it bleeds, it leads. When the riots happening it's it's very sexy to cover it, and to put the people that are saying this is how the people feel, the people are angry, so on and so forth. But after the whole thing is over and it's just smoke, and the cameras have gone, no one's really paying attention to the long run devastation. So did did you? How much of that did you do? You think is you know lingering today in in Ferguson?
1: Well. Ferguson is sad, and as you say, this is a pattern that affects. You can look at uh, the riots of the '60s, Detroit, Los Angeles, and so forth. Detroit has never, in now 50 years, recovered. Uh, it's just not remotely the city it once was. Uh, Watts in L.A. is not is, is still is struggles. Riots leave. They become territories that human beings want to want no part of they want to abandon and so they they usually intensify and deepen poverty and all the things that that uh distress these cities but i i in in Ferguson, I mean the first time we we landed there, began to drive around the city uh what what you said a moment ago about not really realizing. The damage i didn't I hadn't really realized this perfectly reasonable office buildings and storefronts wiped out uh, years at that time after the the riots had, had happened. The damage was amazing, and all the businesses people would point out to us gone one woman had a had a bakery that was very popular and so forth. she tried to come back. it was a struggle because people are not coming downtown anymore it's gone now uh well one business after another certainly it's uh I, in the future one hopes this will turn around but but uh the the negative stigma that sits on ferguson people have lost uh you know half the value or more of their homes are you going to really buy a house in ferguson at this moment in time uh, so Point being, riots do a lot of a lot of collateral damage to the communities that claim to be injured in the first place. It, this is what drives us to racism, drives us to, to riot. It, it's, it's this kind of syndrome. Then we really tear up our own cities then afterwards, in, in, in a sense, again to sort of validate that poetic truth. But it's it is painful to 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 see that see crime rates go up, see the police force decline. And um, yet we met so many tenacious people in Ferguson who are determined, white and black, who are never going to leave, who are determined to stand their ground. And uh, and in fact, a new boys club has been built uh, near the neighborhood where Michael was shot. So there are some good things that have uh that have come out, but they've had a a difficult struggle.
2: One thing that's interesting about all of it is that the difference between the protests today and the protests of the 50s, the 40s, the 60s, is that Martin Luther King had a philosophy that he would never go into his town unless he knew that the people would be protected or remain the same, because he knew that coming into that town could invite violence. You have to remember this was degradation to people who take names. And then once they left, they would punish them. You either you either know, kill them or um, force him out of a job or something like that. We don't do that today. We just have instant gratification. which is riot. And then we go, okay, we're well done. We get famous. We get our name on Twitter. We get the, um, we get the accolades. We get everything. We're not responsible to uh, the town or anything. Most of the people never come back.
0: Yeah, and you point out that a lot of the rioters were not from Ferguson. Most of the, by far,
1: most of the rioters were not from Ferguson. Maybe one in ten was actually from Ferguson. Um, it was the, we kept hearing that sort of uh, breakdown. Uh, most of it was—they were from everywhere. They were from all across the country. They were even from Europe in some cases, but not Ferguson.
2: And they knew, they knew that immediately. I think it was just Sunday night, Michael Brown was killed on Saturday, if I remember correctly. On Sunday night, they burned the Christian thought. So, where Michael Brown's body was, if you just go up the street and turn left, no, turn right onto the that was the Christian thought. That's where everybody shot. That's where everybody in the neighborhood got the food. So the, so the people in that town were not in that place. So they knew immediately it was done by outsiders who had no idea what that place meant to the local. And so that's when they realized, oh, we've got a bigger problem. We've got people coming from outside.
0: So the other thing that I find really interesting about the Ferguson story is the story of the Ferguson market. And what happened with that in the aftermath of Michael Brown's death, so can you tell that story about the, the demands that were made and concessions and further demands? And to remind people, the Ferguson Market is the you know, Pakistani owned sort of almost like a Indian Indian Indian. Okay, the with Pakistani, but you did from India. Okay, yeah, sure. So that so it was a, it was an Indian market. Maybe not quite a deli, almost like a convenience store uh, that Michael Brown had been to the night before and had just robbed uh, before the the cops accosted him. And it was the it was the reason why why the cops were called on him. So can you uh, tell the story of what happened to that that market after? Can you tell us the story? Elon knows it very well. are going to so,
1: usually yeah, so the market was. Uh, that's why they. Oh, you know,
2: That's the reason why they burned the quickest stop. They thought that that was the market. They thought that that was where Michael Brown had gone, and yeah. the took cost. So that was the mistake. It was actually about a quarter of a mile down the, the other way down the road. Um, so basically, um, that market has always been the the the, the symbol of the like the standard other than the the spot where Michael Brown died. This is the two big spots. So in um, 2018, the fourth anniversary of Michael Brown's death, they needed, I guess, the protesters needed some sort of target to focus on. And as they point out in the film, uh, the chief, uh, Tom Jackson, was gone. Uh, all the other play, all the major players from the two thousand and fourteen incident were gone. The only main target left was the market. So the protesters targeted the market, and they um, basically asked for demand. like, you must close down on the on the end on the anniversary of Brown's death every year. You must host a barbecue. You must contribute to a Michael Brown's, or actually pay for a Brown's, Scholarship fund. You must stop selling some kind of commercial drug, like some crop medicine. It's like a precursor for another drug. So, I mean, it's a legal product, but you must stop selling that. So, anyway, to all these demands. And the market met every single demand, except for, um, oh, they wanted them to close down for three days on the Michael Brown anniversary. They said we'll close down on the day. You know, we gotta make money. So, they literally gave them everything. And once they gave him everything, the protesters said, that, that's not enough. We want the store. So they should keep escalating the demand. As in, they wanted to own the store. Yeah, just give it to them. They become, I think it was after I they become the Michael Brown liquor store, or, or whatever was, what the new name would be, the Michael Brown Market. And, um, but it just really tells you about, the, about how the protesters have a desire to keep the protest alive. So they should keep moving the go and post it. So, And I think it, they got a lot of backlash for, um, for that. Because people were just like, oh, my God, you want to take away a the store? These people had nothing to do with what happened, other than they called the police. But that was it. And they had nothing to do with it. And everybody else would have called the police if they had been pushing the store. I mean, that's what you do. Otherwise, you allow yourself to be taken advantage of You know, you live in your neighborhood like that. And then to so the next year, they moved on to a new set of demand, which was now we want the new black uh, city, uh, county uh, attorney to reopen the microgram case. I guess they felt that they, that they have, just they have black guy in office. He might find somebody that the white right guy didn't find. So anyway, it's just a new story, something that just feeds the media just shoot the microgram Brown thing alive. And you kind of feel a little um, bad for them in a the way because you just know nothing's gonna come out of it. Nothing, I mean, you look, I come, I mean, I come, I come from I was
1: gonna say one, the pattern that, is, that was fascinating for me about the market and what they kept escalating, and, and uh, this, give me the market, give us the market. <laughs> Is the, the I think the underlying dynamic is that it's a a situation of the victim probing the uh, his presumed oppressor to see how much entitlement am I due? So how much it, and, and so though this liquor store had nothing to do really with the the, the death of Michael Brown. He he had gone there but the night before and and so forth. The father, the, the blacks in the community participating in this, we're probing. We're victims. We want entitlement. We want, to, we want you to literally, in a free enterprise society, give us this, this business. Just give it to us. Well, that's, that's, that shows you, to me, a people looking for power through their victimization. Not through their talents. Their efforts, but through their vict- happy almost to see victimization because that seems to be the ticket to ride and the liquor store it seemed to me was a, was a good example of that tragic of that pattern uh, and it's always self-destructive it always ends up hurting the the people who who are who, who are probing used who are trying to to manipulate for their entitlement. They, they end up the first losers.
2: Listen, I, I actually I feel a lot of empathy for the father, for Michael Brown's father. In a way, I mean, you have to remember, this is the guy they never asked for this to happen to him. So that's why, I mean, I don't condemn him or anything. I don't know how I would behave if I was in that situation because, as my father stayed. Really, in that situation, you have an enormous amount of power there. Michael Brown, the father, is well known. He's famous. He's lived out obscurity obscurity into this echelon, in in a way. And so I don't have a lot. I mean, I have a lot of empathy for him because, in a way, he's trapped. Every year, he comes back up. Every year, it's something. It's a heavy burden to carry. I mean, it's the heavy thing to deal with. With most people, if you lose a child, you're on your own. There's no power there. You have to deal with that and move on. And he is not in that same situation. He's in a very political a very racialized situation. And in a way, that kind of hurts him, I think. I think Because if he was just a white right guy, right, or if he was a black kid and killed his son, he would have force to deal with it and move on, and move on with life.
0: Yeah, I I mean, there's so many interesting and telling dynamics in this one story. It's almost a parable. And, you know, when I've thought in the past year and a half about the issue of reparations and what would constitute enough, I, I often have trouble convincing people that that whole way of framing the question misses something very important about the psychology of demand-based activism. The psychology of demand-based activism is not that you have a set of requests that you want independent of anything, and it's just a matter of whether people satisfy those demands. It's inherently a goalpost-shifting mentality that the moment you get what you asked for yesterday, it will no longer feel like enough. And there will be massive social incentives for anyone who steps up and says, actually, we need more. That person is going to get boosted to the top of the social hierarchy. And this is what people don't understand about reparations and, and any, any similar psychological dynamic that's going on. And so I I want to point people to this case as just a warning about the fact that you have to draw, you, you have to give compensation where compensation is due based on legal precedence. But you have to draw a red line and you have to leave people unsatisfied. That's what that means. Or else you will be in a never ending cycle and they will take everything from you. And the the other dynamic I think it highlights is there's this very neat and convenient separation people have in their minds between the victims and oppressors. And it seems to me the real world does not work like that. You know, today's victim easily becomes tomorrow's oppressor. And today's oppressor easily becomes tomorrow's victim because human beings, you know, contain... The potential for good and evil within almost all of us, save for, you know, the whatever tiny percentage of people are true psychopaths, most people can easily find themselves being a victim or an an oppressor based on the circumstance. And in this case, these, these poor Indian shopkeepers who were initially victims of Michael Brown later were asked to give up... Everything they worked for in their lives to atone for something they had absolutely nothing to do with, and if anything, were already victims of. So, who is the oppressor in that local circumstance there? Right? So, I I encourage people not to just cleave the world into, you know, good and evil in this simplistic way where white people are evil, black people are permanently noble. Um, it's a dehumanizing of both parties and uh, it fails to capture the complexity that's involved. Yeah. We at Cishishadi
2: are really moving towards that. Mike son, he is 12 years old. He's in seventh grade um, in a charter school um, in Los Angeles. George Glory happened, all the riots happened. So, obviously, everybody wants to make some sort of symbolic gesture. So, his school, uh, the way they handled it is to um, ban Huckleberry bin or the N-word. But did that start? You know, you, okay, so you 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 Jesus's glory. Is, is he going to prevent all of that by banning a book? For me, what are talking about is the complexity. And so, it's a very simplistic Almost, you know, virtue action that does nothing. And the irony is that book with all the complexities, with all of the problems, with all the, the, the end word and everything, it actually kids a lot more about life than this very simple action of banning the book. Teach the kids what the end word means. Teach them the history of it. Teach them the consequences of it. Any kid that learned that and never used to learn because they will know and understand that, and that's what we're doing as a society on so many levels. We're not really educating people on, on, on complexity. On, uh, we're not teaching them you know, good books. We're not teaching them right, crime and punishment. How do you go from uh, a guy, low-down criminal, to somebody who is trying to religion at the end of the book? I mean, that's a complex figure. We, is, she, is she able to achieve redemption? No, what we do is we find, a, if we realize somebody, we find one flaw in them, and we bring them down on the one flaw. We ignore the humanity. And that's what we have become as a society. And it's very, it's very damaging. So I really agree with you on the, on the need to bring that complexity back, back into, our, into our humanity, confuse people. It makes you look at people instead of race, color, and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. So um, before I let you guys go, I want to talk about what has gone on with your attempt to get the documentary on Amazon. So it's, I've read in the Wall Street Journal that they're, they're not letting your documentary be, be sold on Amazon and stonewalling you. And So can you just tell everyone what's going on with that?
2: How about if I give you what happened and should give you the meaning? Uh, the meaning behind it. Um, yeah, so we uh, uploaded every day onto the platform on um, September 29th I, um, and then October 1st. It, 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 they, they say you have a two-to-four-day review period. And in case you have an issue or something, they, you may, it may take two or three weeks. So they advise you to start two or three weeks before the day they want released on. So I picked the day. I think November change I uploaded the material. It's just three components, the film, the caption file, the artwork, that's it. Then on October 1st, two days later, we get put into a call, content review. This is my first time, so I think, oh, I must have messed something up on the files or something like that. But as the days went by, and I kept emailing, trying to answer, nothing. And the days went by, and then I looked up content review, and I realized that there was four categories. I can't remember all of them, but it's basically uh, a bunch of content, um, public domain content, uh, vulgar or something really like explorative, like you know, pedophilia or something like that. But we met none of the criteria. So then why would we put into content review? Why would we flag? I mean, it's a documentary. We use these in footage. The other focusing documentaries do. I mean, it's all shared you know, footage. Interviews, and that's it. So why were you putting into that, I don't know. And then on October 13, you know, 7.30 at night, which is kind of a little real time, we get the email to reject us. But what's worse about that email is that they, they do not wish to miss the film. Do not even try to come back to us. And you cannot appeal this. So it's over, it's done. Communication is done. I'm, I've been rejecting Hollywood Many times, many times, I have never received such a letter with uh, a letter with such uh, finality. And um, so, uh, yeah, so, so we moved on. I mean, with America, we just said, uh, okay, you know what, we'll we move, we move on to a new opportunity, and we did. And we uh, put the film on to Vimeo, Vimeo or Vimeo. And um, we've had a lot of success with that. And the, the interesting thing is, when we put the film on Vimeo, Amazon all of a sudden puts the film back on, but wait a minute. So we had we had like three days to publish it. We had the Wall Street Journal, a couple other things. So obviously it was up in the air. And then you also had the New York, the New York Post story with you, the Biden thing that was, what was going on. So all of a sudden, whoa, 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 you 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 can't do that. When You reject that. You forfeit your rights. your property. You can't have it. So you can't put the film up without permission. So we we get an email from Amazon. The film's up. The, what, what happened? Well, it turned out there's another whole component to the story and WF were from behind our backs and whatever it is. And they kind of came back to us on Sunday after we already, this dude cheesy, this, this disorder. If you get rejected because we're not right for you, we don't want to be on your platform. And I think it's very important to just take a stand like that. Because why are we going to be on your platform? And it turns out that Amazon has told this third party, you, um, uh, oh, the email was a mistake. Oh, okay, it was auto-generated. How is that possible? I mean, you have a film that's sitting there. I mean, you should just generate the email. So they kind of claim that the whole thing was a mistake and misunderstanding, which I really don't feel um equitable because we know that a story can survive one coincidence. a story you can never survive two or three or four coincidences. And there's just too many of them in this story. So, but when you look at it from from a human point of view, can the human being make all of these choices? Yes. You can have all of these choices be mistakes. So obviously they rejected the film because of the partnership. The people election, it's a story that completely goes against the the Black Lives Matter narrative, so um, yeah,
1: you yeah. should also add that they contributed ten million dollars to Black Lives Matter. As Amazon they, did, as yeah. they counselled us. Oh, I didn't hear
0: about
2: that. Yeah. Well, Black Lives Matters. Um, even one of the leaders, Galah, have won the brother's contract yesterday to so Hollywood. I know a lot of people in Hollywood. In that, really is, that the initiated that the movement there. So we're winding completely in the other direction.
0: So, it, so is it on Amazon now or just Vimeo? Just Vimeo. Well, I guess you know I, I don't know what lesson to draw from that other than what we already know about you know Amazon and Twitter having a a left wing bias. You know, Twitter, as you mentioned, Twitter censoring the Totally legitimate Hunter Biden story. Whatever ends up being true about that story when all the facts are in, it's certainly news and it 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 should be read. You know, it should be for the public to decide how legitimate it is. And God knows if it were about Donald Trump Jr. or Eric Trump, that story would have been allowed to circulate on Twitter. So I'm I'm glad that it's out. The documentary is called. What killed Michael Brown? And you can get it on Vimeo. And um, before I let you guys go, is there any anywhere else that the audience should go towards to find your other work, like a website or a Twitter page? We do have a website, whatkilledmichaelbrown.com. And you
1: can get a movie from Vimeo there, and a bunch of things that are.
2: Yeah, yeah. Should, um, if, you, if you're if interested in watching the film and you don't like the, the mail or stuff, we're talking to a bunch of um, other people right now. So we'll probably be rolling out on different platforms. So the best thing to do is subscribe to, to
0: RakeelMichaelBrown.com and you get all the uh, updates. Okay, thank you so much for coming on my show. And I hope uh, everyone listening goes and watches the documentary. Thanks so much, Eli and Shelby. Thank, thank you very much.